0: Thank you very much, Sanganista Nista. Ongi en yogi Padma Kesadong bolla, Yatenshugi nadrub <laughs> ne, Padma jung ne Kodo so that's the famous White Lotus seven-line invocation to Guru Rinpoche to uh, Padmasambhava, first revealed by the great Terton Guru. Chowang, sometime in, I guess, the 11th or 12th century and continually uh, revealed and found in treasure texts uh, down the ages and regularly chanted uh, within the Nyingma, well, many Tibetan uh, traditions uh, repeatedly to invoke the presence of Guru Rinpoche, of Padmasambhava, of uh, the Lotus Board in Bhante's translation of it, translated uh, with Dada Rinpoche, it goes something like, Hung, to the northwest of the land of Urgyen, on the calyx of a lotus flower. O wondrous, the highest city has been attained. O thou who art encircled with an entourage of darkenies, following thy example will I work. Thou must come here to give me thy blessing, Guru Padma Siddhi Hong. And uh, I think it's important to, uh, when we contemplate Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche, that we, it's not, uh, well, it's important to me that this isn't uh, simply a sort of intellectual exercise. This is a devotional act. It's a devotional practice to uh, to speak, to even have the honor of speaking about um, uh, Padmasambhava. Uh when i was ordained in 1976 uh banti uh gave me the padmasambhava mantra uh he gave me uh some practices to do with padmasambhava which i've been practicing uh ever since uh he gave me the name Padma Vajra, which he pointed out was a name of padmasambhava and uh he just made the comment you you he mentioned my devotion to padmasambhava at the time of ordination so padmasambhava has been absolutely central uh, to my life uh, since that time um, uh, obviously he was a, a little bit important before then but I hadn't lived very long so um, uh, but that was you know sealing the connection with with padmasambhava um and Bhante has given me many, many things in my life as an order member. Many, many, many things. If I go through what is good and best in my life, what is my life, Uh, it's due to Bhante's blessings in so many ways. I mean, absolutely no doubt about. that. if he'd just given me one thing, if it was just that mantra, that ordination, that name, it would be enough it would be enough. Everything is in that and it's uh, motivated and informed uh, what's best in my uh, order life uh, ever since. So this is extraordinarily important to me and in a sense, uh, very, very personal. Um, As I've gone on in my uh, order life, um, my life, uh, it's interesting, more and more has become available, more and more translated about Padmasambhava, uh, when I was first ordained, there was no life and liberation of Padmasambhava. We had to rely on uh, Evans Vence's uh, uh, epitome of his life and various other sources. But there wasn't much available. But over the decades, more and more has, has been translated sadhanas and devotional texts and you know different studies of the life story and all the rest of it. I must admit, uh, as I go on, I mean, I keep abreast of, the, of these different things, but I realise that in doing the sadhana that I, I know less. Uh, I know less and less and less about Padmasambhava. It makes, uh, meanwhile, the sadhana, the meditation on Padmasambhava has become uh, more vivid. Well, I, I wouldn't even call it a meditation anymore. I'd say it's the environment in which I live, uh, that's what uh, Padmasambhava is to me and intimately related to uh, Bhante, intimately related to uh, the life of the order, my life in the order. But it, it increasingly, it's becoming harder and harder to say anything. I can really understand why in the tantric tradition they talk about the Gusha refuges, you know, that the uh, Buddha, the Dharma and Sangha in their secret aspect the esoteric aspect of the guru the the ishita devata the greatly desired deity and and the darkening and um, i remember when banti first started to talk about the secret refuges he said the secret not in the sense of keeping them away from people they're not esoteric in a sort of secret society sense he said it's because it's it, it's very very difficult to talk about experience and it's especially difficult to talk about spiritual experience. It's to do with, to use a very un-Buddhistic term, but which I think is a really lovely word, it's to do with your soul. It's to do with the intimacies of your, of your life. So it becomes increasingly difficult, I think, to talk about these areas. Sometimes people ask me, uh, what do you think you've uh, developed as you meditate on Padmasambhava? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to, to that is. I have no idea. You tell me. I don't know. Um, and what does Padmasambhava represent? Well, we could say this, that, the other. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. That's not why I meditate on Guru Rinpoche. That's not why I'm devoted to, to Padmasambhava. It's, I, don't, I can't even tell you why I'm devoted to Padmasambhava. Um, that, that, that doesn't really come into it. You have to meditate on Padmasambhava perhaps to get some sense of that. I also should just say it, um, and you know, I could, really what I ought to do after that is just keep silent and we just go and have our tea breaks and, and so on. Maybe that would be better, but um, you've paid good money to be here, so I probably do need to say something, and I do like talking. So um, that little prelude on silence and what you can't say is going to be hoisted on my own petard, I think. Um, and the title of this weekend, Padmasambhava in the Life of the Order, I mean, and as uh, I was really glad when Sanganista read out from Bhante's uh, recent piece uh, talking about how important Padmasambhava is in the life of the Order and how important Padmasambhava is to him. Um, but to, to, to uh, talk about Padmasambhava in the life of the Order, in a way, that's a bit misleading, I think, because I can't speak about Padmasambhava in the life of the order. All I can do is talk about Padmasambhava in this order member's life, in my life. Uh, I can't speak for you. So what I'm going to be trying to uh, share with you, to communicate with you, is just some reflections on on Padmasambhava from someone who's, you know, attempted to meditate on this figure for, you know, the best part of forty years, uh, more than forty years. Uh, that uh, prayer that we began with um, speaks really is referring to Padmasambhava's birth, and let's start with Padmasambhava's uh, birth. It's very interesting. I was uh, there's, uh, about Padmasambhava's life. Uh, there are different versions of it. I was looking at, an, at a, a Sadna um, big book on a particular, very esoteric. Nyingma um, Pa Sadhana and um, when they transmit these texts they talk about the lineage and they talk about the guru who you know, who delivers the lineage and they have what they call a nidana, which is a, a, a kind of life story and um, they give two different versions of the life seems to be absolutely no problem in giving two different versions of the life very interesting uh, sort of uh, difference between views of history, if you like, in, in uh, ancient traditions and our own concern, concern for historicity. If you're looking for historicity in the strict Western sense in Padmasambhava's life, forget it. Um, there's very little hard fact. All this stuff about the 8th century legends, these are all revealed texts that have uh, started to emerge in the 11th century in uh, treasure traditions, where, where, if you like, the cult I'm using that in the anthropological sense uh, of Padmasamava emerges. Uh, this intense creativity uh, in, in Tibet in, in, in around the 11th century, what some people have called the Tibetan Renaissance, where you get the emergence of the new translation schools and you get the emergence of a very, very self confident Tibetan Buddhism, and a, particularly the rising up of the, the treasure tradition, which is an extraordinarily inspired, creative. Uh, tradition. This is where the Bardo Tadol uh, comes out of. And a lot of the life stories of Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche and tremendous sort of yogic uh, 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 um, proficiency and uh, insights, quite a remarkable period. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a problem for me that Padmasambhava emerges uh, in the visions of these great uh, Nyingma uh, yogis and, and, and so on. It's a, it's a living uh, tradition. It's alive and vital uh, and continues still and even in our own very, 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 very modest fashion influences our own our own community. Um, so, yes, uh, that, that, that was um, a bit about the history. But anyway, the story of Padmasambhava's birth, of course, is that... Um, he emerges, uh, a fully grown, eight-year-old boy, in a lotus in the middle of a wonderful lake. Uh, it's a gorgeous vision of uh, a kind of paradise, uh, almost Arcadian paradise of you know wonderful lotuses and trees and water birds and. Uh, flowers, uh, this beautiful child, uh, sometimes described as pink, sometimes the colour of the purple of seashells, uh, an emanation of a a crimson ray from the heart of uh, Amitabha, um, this fully grown uh, boy. And this is a a vision regularly meditated upon by the Nyingma, uh, the great Nyingma mystics. It's the, the theme of this, of this invocation that I began with. But um, there are different forms of Padmasambhava. It's not just the eight forms. There's so many different visions of Padmasambhava, which I think is very, very important. Uh, you can't pin this figure down at all. Uh, but there's one particular f- uh, form that I find extraordinarily attractive and haunting. You'll see it's a plate in the life and liberation. And Padmasambhava is pink, a deep pink, uh, in this form, and he is wear, wearing very, very colourful robes, and um, he's very young, and yet when you look at the face, he could be very old. It's really beautifully uh, painted tanker and a very, very sort of playful uh, pose on his on, on his lotus flower, and uh, covered in um, you know in flowers, you know with garlands of uh, you know pink lotuses and. Um, you know, gorgeous, uh, long black hair. It's an extraordinarily beautiful vision. I think it's very, very important when you reflect on Padmasambhava. We tend to privilege Padmasambhava, the great sort of demon tamer uh, and so on, almost a bit macho kind of approach to to Padmasambhava. And, um, you know, that we need to sort of, I don't know what we need to do, but anyway. Uh, but but the figure regularly in, among Yung Ma devotees is seen as utterly, compellingly beautiful. Utterly, compellingly beautiful. The beauty of his form overpowers all forms of existence. This is the great Dujon Rinpoche's phrase of Padmasambhava. The beauty of his form overpowers all other appearances. That the beauty of, you know, the, 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 the expression of the Dharmakaya um, is... Uh, uh, is is overpowering everything, if you like, not not through uh, through power, but through but through love, uh, through yes, through beauty, a sort of healing vision of beauty. Um, you find as well, just in relation to this topic of beauty, I just want to remember to get this in. Uh, uh, one of the things I've been struck by recently is the root verses of the six bardos, and particularly the bardo of taking rebirth. The Bardo of taking rebirth describes that Oedipal uh, situation that, that brings us back to embodiment, where according to not just the Bardo Todol, but this is based on a much earlier Indian tradition, Svastivada tradition, that we are reborn because we see two people having sex. We see a man and a woman copulating. This is what, but that vision prompts in us tremendous desire and jealousy. Tremendous sexual desire and jealousy. And we want to get between them. You know, we want to we want to make love to the woman who will become our mother. We want to make love to the father who will become our father. Uh, This will determine our sex according to tradition. I don't think we should be dogmatic about it. But what interests me is the desire and the jealousy and the intensity of, of desire that brings you back. And what's the instruction? What's the instruction in that situation? Yes, they talk about cultivating nirveda, revulsion, seeing through, turning away, withdraw uh, from from that situation, seeing the uh, uh, the pain and the ugliness, the ignobility of sangsaric existence. But the other instruction is to meditate upon the guru, the father-mother, as it's translated by uh, in that Evans-Wentz translation. You're supposed to visualize at that point your your guru or Padmasamava, in union with their consort. You see, in other words, the union of wisdom and compassion and unite, unite with that. Again, I don't take that literally. What I, would, what I would say in relation to that is that you're looking for the most compellingly beautiful image. That's, that's what is needed to prevent uh, future embodiment, future immersion in samsara. It's, it's only something of extraordinary fascination and beauty that can take all of your desires, all of your longings that's going to affect a transformation. This is why visualisation practice, devotion, bhakti, of all kinds is so extraordinarily important. Um, the, 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 the figure should absolutely fascinate us, take all of us, and of course, be connected with the most deeply meaningful uh, vision of 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 life, and of course, it is also connected to uh, uh, all sorts of uh, insights into voidness and and so on. Uh, so, beauty is uh, incredibly important. I think when we we meditate on Padmasambhava, and of course, you know the story. He's this uh, extraordinary child found by a childless king uh, in according to some of the uh, uh, traditions. Uh, who asks him who he is, where he comes from, what caste is he? You know, the Indian concern about caste. Um, why is he here? And I can't remember that there's different versions of it. He talks, well, who are your parents? Is My mother is, uh, is wisdom, my father is uh, spontaneous, sparkling awareness, uh, my mother is the is, is, is space. I can't remember all these different things that they say. Uh, I'm here to consume duality. Uh, I'm here uh, because I am puzzled by suffering. Uh, I have no caste. I come from a country where there is no caste, very important, uh, and just sitting there. Okay? So, so you have to imagine in this vision an eight-year-old child speaking wisdom, you sometimes get it with children, don't you? Some of you who have young children will know that they suddenly come out with something which is absolutely pure and, and true. Um, uh, well, this is the, the vision we have of Padmasama. And of course, what it's evoking is the nature of bodhicitta, the nature of enlightened consciousness, uh, this fresh, ever young, ever youthful, ever new, primordially new and yet primordially old, Uh, vast, uninhibited, unbounded uh, awareness, absolutely pure, beyond any kind of sense of purity and impure purity. And yes, fresh, creative. And beauty, of course, in Indian tradition is, is what is ever new, ever knew that that's what beauty is according to Indian aesthetics so this is what's really being communicated with this uh, vision of the eight-year-old boy child speaking like this Uh, and it's of course what you're what you're trying to realize when you say that seven line prayer you're trying to connect with that city that that the realization of that quality of mind that quality of consciousness mind is too weak it's far too mental what do you call it i don't know what you call it awareness i don't think is very good either it's too for us that's far too heady far too heady it would be better we, we it would be better to talk use a word like soul or something like that because you're talking about something of immense creative uh, power and force and yet which has nothing in it of any kind of uh, uh, egotistical nature or anything of that. Very hard, I think, to really get a sense of what is meant by, you know, the primordially pure uh, awareness, gnana, vidya, uh, whatever you want to call it, that, that the, these visions are communicating. But that's, that, that's, that's what that, that particular uh, part of the life story is communicating. And of course, Indra adopts the sun, uh, adopts, adopts him as his son, adopts uh, the lake born Vajra, as he's called, the, uh, the youthful Padmasambhava. He takes him to the palace. Wonderful. He's got a son at last, this childless king, terrible curse. The, the country is uh, in drought and famine. It's blighted because there is no son. The king is not potent. He's even blind. Uh, um, he gets his sight back through his encounter with the boy. So of course, it's terrible—an Indian king not having a son, but he adopts him. But it's very risky adopting um, a child that you find in a lotus. <laughs> a very, very risky thing—a foundling. Bringing a foundling into your uh, kingdom. I mean, you can understand it. We'd all do it if we were in that situation, but. Um, Uh, what's going to happen, you know, incorporate, trying to incorporate that vast creative uh, consciousness into your bounded kingdom. Uh, Well, of course, you know, he's a wonderful prince, of course. He masters all the the warrior arts, you know. He learns so much, becomes, you know, it's a a bit like the life of the Buddha, you know, the later life of the lives of the Buddha. But, of course, that... uh, Consciousness can't be contained, and uh, there are different versions of what happens, but eventually he starts to misbehave uh, the young prince very, very badly. Very, very badly. He starts to um, really feel confined by uh, the palaces and uh, starts to adopt the, uh, the, uh, the clothing of a, of, of, a, of a skull bearer. You know, so this is a sort of tantric, um, Indian Buddhist tantric or even Hindu tantric um, uh, you know, figure of wearing garlands of you know bone ornaments and all that sort of thing, going naked, doing all sorts of crazy dances. And in the course of one of these things, there's a terrible accident. He knocks a trident, I think, off the top of a, of a palace roof, which uh, kills uh, the son of a Brahmin. And, of course, he's uh, severely blamed uh, for this. And, uh, of course, they want him uh, executed and all this sort of thing. There's kind of uproar in the, in the kingdom. Uh, the king, who has the power, said, that we can't do this. We can't you know, kill this, uh, this, this, this man. We can't do that. So what's the punishment? The punishment is banishment. Exile. Exile. You've done a terrible thing, even though it's an accident, but you've done a terrible thing. It's exile. Uh, Out. Out of the group. Just want to uh, pause before I talk a little bit about where he's exiled to and what that uh, might indicate. I think one of the things I find interesting to reflect upon to do with the adoption of the son... um, is for myself to make sure that I'm not, as it were, domesticating uh, my vision of the Dharma, uh, not compromising, I say my vision, the vision of the Dharma, it's not mine, um, that's the wrong way of talking about it. I think it's so easy, so very, very easy to, to begin with a very strong vision we come to the Dharma sometimes at a very, very deep need or deep inspiration. Same thing, perhaps. We make, we really connect with it very, very strongly. We have a radical idea of what transformation is. Uh, that, that vision is sort of searing, that faith is very motivating. Uh, and of course, over time, the danger is, is that it just becomes yeah, domesticated. Domesticated in one way or another. Uh, I don't mean literally. You know, you. you, you I'm not talking about uh, you know settling down necessarily into a family situation. You settle down anywhere and everywhere. That's 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 the gravitational pull. That's what human beings do. But it's very very easy, I think, to to um, uh, how can I put it? To to make the Dharma serve a comfortable worldly life. In whatever situation we're in, very, very easy to do that. Uh, you know, we have our bit of Buddhism that, that makes us feel good. Um, we even think we know what Buddhism is and we're a sort of expert on on Buddhism, on the Dharma. Uh, maybe we even give lots of talks and take uh, lots of classes and lead lots of study groups and be a very well-respected in you know, a member of the community. Or, you know, we might have another style where we're always anti-everything, but it's just another style. Um, it's another way of domesticating your, you know, the vision of the Dharma, which actually transcends all of that. So I think this story of Padmasambhava, that consciousness, that youthful energy of the Dharma, not being, um, not prepared to be hemmed in... Unable to be hemmed in by, you know, by a a kingdom, is telling us something. Is telling us something. And maybe you could talk about this in the groups. Are we really living from, you know, what is really searing in terms of of vision? Uh, Where do we compromise? Where do we, if you like, sell out? Where are we doing it individually? Where are we doing it in our centres or our or our chapters? something to reflect upon. Of course, life being what it is and the Dharma being what it is, you might try to do that, but life can come along and give you a really serious kick uh, in a tender place. Um, it's interesting with, with Padmasambhava that he's exiled and he's exiled to a cremation ground. He's sent to the sitavana, the the... the the chilly grove, the cool forest, this 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 very very serious um, cremation ground. Yes, we've studied the cremation ground quite a lot, haven't we? There's that wonderful lecture that bunty gave in the seventies. Uh, the, the 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 cremation, the symbolism of the cremation ground and the celestial maidens. It was an absolutely wonderful lecture, uh, irreplaceable lecture, where he talks about going into the crucial situation deliberately sought out um, where you really are uh, looking death fully in the face uh, and you're inspired by it. And the darkenies of inspiration dance uh, in relation to that. They're the the forces of inspiration. Still a very, very important uh, lecture. But there's another aspect to do with being in the cremation ground it's uh, The thing is, what's happened to Padmasambhava, he's been made untouchable. They're very, very important. In you know, a part of the symbolism, the whole business of being, you know, being involved with the death of a Brahmin, no matter how accidental that is, the punishment is untouchability. Uh, it's not just going to cremation ground. You think, oh, that's groovy. You're, you're in this place where there's the dead and there's all sorts of ogres and needs. Wow, I'm up for that. No, he is shunned. He is blamed. That's the only purification possible. He is blamed. He's become one of the people of blame. This is a translation of a Sufi term a very important uh, aspect of Sufism and a a sort of early kind of group from Baghdad, the Malamatiya, the people of blame. Uh, These people, um, there's different sort of versions of this, but these people would deliberately go against the Sharia, would deliberately go against the the ethical codes of Islam. not in an ostentatious way, but just because you the sheer force of their mystical practice. And that would invite censure and blame. Of course, that's very, very serious in that tradition. Why is this so important for them? Because they say, they say how otherwise can you test your love for the real? How otherwise can you test it How otherwise can you test your refuge uh, if you're not being blamed by the group around you? How can you possibly do that? I think this is really interesting and something I find extremely attractive and incredibly frightening. (laughs) I hate being blamed. Absolutely hate it. Really, really touchy uh, about any kind of critical feedback. But you know, there's certain things that can sometimes happen in your life where you have no choice, where it's going to come. It may be something you've done, it may be something you've not done. But sooner or later, I think the Dharma does that to you. It almost engineers situations where you are going to be a figure of censure, where the group, no matter how, even you know, where the group of one kind or another, or the group that you feel a part of, it might even be friends, people that you've relied on, actually uh, turn on you and criticise you. It's extremely painful, extremely lonely, but a tremendous test of the depth of one's connection with reality. Because after all, what, what is happening? What is happening? You know, basically, the world is showing you what it really is. You know, this place... Which you love so much, these people you love so much, and where you, you get so much security and where you want so much, is saying it's not like that. It's actually monstrous and ugly, and it's turning on you. You've got away with it for a long time, but it's now turning on you. So, what are you going to do? And the annoying thing about Buddhism is, and the Buddha's teaching is, you cannot retaliate. So irritating. You know, hatred never ceases through hatred. Here in this world, it only ceases through love. This is a sanatana dharma. This is the eternal law. Again and again and again, there is absolutely no excuse for, uh, for violence or reactive comeback. You have to look deeply into yourself and it's revealing your attachment and dependence upon... Uh, well, very often, just being left alone, I think. It's not just that you want praise. You just want to be left alone. Just leave me alone. I've got my comfortable little corner. Well, listen, you know, if you practice and if you're at all visible, you won't be left alone. You know, something is going to, is going to sort of come. It's going to arise. I was talking to Banti a while back and I'd heard that he has everything read to him. Everything in Shabda, uh, even critical stuff, is read to him. Uh, you can ask uh, Stana Shraddha about this, he knows, because he reads it very often to Bhante. And I said, "But Banty, why do you do that? Why?" I said, "I'd hate that, you know, some of the things said about you. And, and he said, "Well, actually, I'm not really bothered with what people say about me. Um, but I want to know the worst because of the order, because I care about the order." I said, "But I said, I'd find that terribly upsetting. I just wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I said, have you trained in that? He said, well, yes. He said, I have trained. He said, long time ago, when I was a young man, um, I trained like this. He said, if I was praised, I would reflect, oh, next time it will be blame. Mm -hmm. And if I was blamed, I would reflect, oh, next time maybe it will be praise. And he said, I've just done that consistently. And I found that very, very helpful. Not long after that, I was studying the spiritually mature from the Dhammapada. And I think this is where he got the reflection from, maybe, I don't know. But it says, like a solid rock unmoved by the wind, so the spiritually mature person, the man of wisdom, is moved neither by praise or blame. And it's almost as if Bhante just didn't, you know, that sounds like a fruit of practice, but Bhante turns it into a reflection, into a meditation um, so, yes, Padmasambhava is blamed. He becomes one of the people of blame. He is outside of caste. He is outside of conventional society. He's in, uh, he's in the burning grounds. He's purifying himself through all these uh, different practices that he's, he's engaged with, because the cremation ground, of course, is a place of... Um, Initiation—it's a place of meditation, and of course, those old Indian cremation grounds are places where the dead are just left. Uh, yes, there are big fires, but these would have been in country districts, and the dead are just left to rot and so on. And of course, it's a place of ghosts and ghouls and ogres and ogresses, and the darkanies that appear there are not the darkenes—they're not the wisdom darkenes; they're the worldly darkenies. Um Darkany in modern Indian languages can mean a, a kind of um, like a female monster, like a sort of ghoul, a ghost and ghoul that's going to to, to suck your blood and eat your bones. So to, don't be confused about your darkini. so You know, you might think that you're with a darkany, a wisdom darkany, an inspirational darkany, but you might be with a different kind of darkany. <laughs> uh, this other kind. The passages in the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava on the cremation ground are extraordinarily vivid. Um, And I'd recommend listening to Bhante's lecture on Padmasambhava from 1979 that he gave at Sakavati not long after the opening of Sakavati. I'd really recommend that because he reads from these passages in an incredibly vivid way. Uh, What you have typically is Padmasambhava sitting with his back to a stupor it's very, very interesting symbolism because the stupa, of course, has the relics of, of the Buddha or a great disciple. It's a, a multi-layered architectural symbol, but very often in the Tibetan tradition, tantric tradition, it's associated with the enlightened mind, uh, enlightened consciousness. He's leaning against that. He's leaning against that reality. He's so confident in that. There's something, isn't it, about leaning back against something, that kind of symbolism. There's a kind of rest and ease. So he's leaning with his back against a stupa. And the are indeed, and other figures are are indeed uh, performing and dancing, but it's quite a show. Uh, you, You get all sorts of vivid descriptions of them dancing, chopping their heads off and sort of dancing while they're holding their heads. And you can imagine the sounds, the laughter, the drums... Um, the glee uh, the shouts the, the, the scary noises sometimes they uh, open up their, 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 their stomach and just take out their entrails which they start eating in front of you, Banti said in the, in the lecture his little comment, sometimes they do that the darkanese. You know, sometimes sometimes people do that he even said that our centres should invite people like this in um, laughter Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, eating their entrails, um, quite you know, symbolically, presumably. Um, changing their genitalia um, at will, their sex, uh, going through sex changes in Pranta uh doing all kinds of weird stuff, changing colour, uh, dancing, and just being absolutely horrific. All the horrors, all of the horrors that... You know that the stuff of nightmares is on display. Is on display. What does Padmasambhava do in relation to this? He goes bright red, and of course he's dressed as a yogi and long hair and you know bone ornaments, and he's wearing the shrouds of the dead and so on. Goes bright red, and he communicates the dharma to them, and he's grinning. He's ecstatic at this scene, at this extraordinarily, well, as far as he's concerned, creative display, not in any way destructive and horrific. Or if it is destructive and horrific, it's part and parcel of the richness of life. This is life. This is life. This is reality, playing, performing, a wonderful creative display of, actually, that pure uh, consciousness which he's... Leaning against, as it were, uh, it's so rich. It's almost like um, you know, you, you in uh, you read William Blake's "The Marriage of Heaven and Hell." Hell is a place of enormous creativity, huge creativity, incredible creativity. You know, the, the the what is it? The infernal. What's the word? It's a way of describing the artistic process. You know, engraving in the infernal method or. Something like that. I can't remember the exact terminology. Well, this is, this is you get the sense through these, these cantos in the Life and Liberation of Padmasambha of tremendous creativity, this ever-changing uh, display. Um, I had a solitary retreat over the, over the Christmas and New Year and um, I've always loved those passages but never really understood them um, and still don't. And uh, some of you might know that me and solitaries don't really agree. Um, I often have uh, left them early, much to my humiliation. Uh, but this solitary wasn't like that. It was, a, it was after all these years. I managed to get the hang of being on a solitary retreat. Um, and one of the things that was very important to that was, first of all, the foundation in metta, in love, and in devotion, in the Padmasambhava Sadhana in particular, and devotion to Banti. Um, uh, but something else, I think, you know, started to—that was the sort of ground, if you like, of the retreat. But the mistakes I think I've made in on solitary, and of course, they're mistakes in my life generally, because a solitary retreat is just reflecting how one is most of the time. Uh, the mistake has always been, I think. Um, uh, uh, seizing, grasping, and aversion, obviously, and delusion, <laughs> obviously. Uh, on solitaries, if there was an ecstatic bit, uh, a bliss bit, a vision bit, I'd want more and go after it. And always, that would be problematic. It would just be horrible, and um, it's the only way I could. And then I'd get confused. And if there was something painful, there'd be this aversion to put it away, to get rid of it, to get it out, uh, which would also lead to to problems. Um, I think also another thing that was important to to getting a sense of this was, I realised that, because people say, you know, watch your mind, watch your ever-changing mind. That metaphor is useless to me. It's utterly useless. Sorry, I know this is really important in Buddhism. Um, watch your ever-changing mind. It's too mental. It's far too mental for me. It's like ideas. I, I, um, I, I. Another little theme that's helped me with this in the Indian aesthetic tradition. They talk about the the taste, the rasa, of the work of art. You have to taste it directly. Whatever it is, whether it's beauty, whether it's peace, whether it's terror. You have to taste it. And that will also make you inhabit a particular mood, which they call bhava or raga. Raga, of course, meaning colour. You change colour in relation to that. But bhava is also regarded as important. Here it means something like an ever-changing mood. And I realised why I find those ways of talking much more helpful to me. Because my experience is, is that... I change colour very, very quickly. I don't think I'm alone in this, but I can move to sort of ecstasy, to misery, in the space of minutes, seconds. I mean, this is slightly... I don't want I don't, I to don't sound, um, you know, mentally ill or anything, but I think my nature is very emotional and I move very fast between ever-changing states which has always been very disconcerting for me. And all this stuff about... I've always been very puzzled by this language of experience it in your body. Whenever anybody says that, I go up into my head and I realise it's because it's always in the body for me. never had a problem of experiencing emotion in body, you know, in my chest, in my stomach, everywhere, if you like, in one way or another. It's as if I change colour as I change mood. This is a very, very important uh, realisation for me that it's okay to keep changing colour. Don't panic. Enjoy the ecstasy, uh, the vision bits, which usually happened in the evening when I was doing poojas. There'd be something going on. Enjoy the light show, but for goodness sake, don't hold on to it. You'll kill it. And, you know, when things were difficult, okay, enjoy that light show, the darker light show well, sort of learn to enjoy that too. And that happened as well, I think, because of this foundation, not of the enlightened mind, but of metta, of devotion. That that was the sort of drone music, if you like, over which the raga played. And I relate that uh, to this sort of, this, this uh, Padmasambhava in the burning grounds, if you like, where you've got this uh, ever-changing uh, world of these 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 freaky figures and as time went on yes through that solitary retreat a greater and greater peace started to descend a kind of uh, enchantment that the, 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 and there were moments of, of real uh, moments of Constancy. You no, know, you can't have that um, but there were there were increasing periods of enchantment and a peaceful enchantment with that but without any loss of of the richness of, of of the retreat, and yes, that's my own very modest sort of way to try and relate to Padmasambhava in the in the burning grounds. Because solitary retreats are very very challenging for me. Uh, I really do feel um, it is the crucial situation for me to be, you know, really alone. And I I do think that that that, that you know, Banty's little teaching on. Uh, every order member should do a one-month solitary retreat every year. I think we should uh, take that very seriously. Uh, I know I need to take it much more seriously than I do. Uh, Better move on. Um, In one of the cremation grounds, uh, Padmasambhava does find a teacher, and it's a darkening. The, the, this is a, a wisdom darkening who's known as Surya Chandra Siddhi, uh, the, uh, the, the, the attainment of, of, of sun and moon or the mastery of sona and lunar energies, a huge red darkening uh, on her throne. And uh, he's very impressed by her servant, her maid servant, because uh, in the course of, you know, trying to receive initiation, the, the, the darkening rips... Uh, 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 cuts open her breast and uh, her stomach, revealing the peaceful and wrathful deities. And Padmasambhava reflects and thinks, well, if that's what the servant's like, what is the teacher going to be like? And he goes to the, the darkening he on her throne, replete with all the solar and lunar ornaments and these wonderful verses of devotion. It's rare that you find Padmasambhava in the Life and Liberation expressing devotion to the guru, to the teacher. You know, all the, great, all the great masters need a teacher, need a guru. So he asks her for initiation. And she says, well, you, in, in, you do see that all the buddhas are present within me. And he says, yes, I, I can see that. You know, she shows the full moon of her face. She reveals herself. And he asks for initiation. The initiation is very, very particular. Uh, she transforms him into a syllable, into hung. In one version of the text, she eats him. In another, she snorts him up her nose, into her head centre. Uh, in other words, he's completely consumed and then passes through her centres, uh, bec- coming out the other end, reborn, uh, uh, completely initiated into all these different things and I found again this a very very compelling image you know we talk about initiation we talk about spiritual death spiritual rebirth we even talk about attainment Uh, this particular image I think is very interesting because it's making it clear that the bodhicitta enlightenment reality all these words uh, the darkening you don't take that into you you don't add that to you so you can strut about in feathers. You are eaten. You are consumed. Uh, there's a wonderful line in, in a great uh, Sufi text uh, on love, the first Persian treatise on love by the great Ahmad Ghazali. And in this text, love is reality. Love is reality. Love is truth. And he says, he, it's, just, it's, it's very aphoristic, It's just um, different insights, difficult to understand into the path and the reality of love. And at one point he says, love is a man eater. Love is a man eater. Love eats all of human nature so that nothing remains. I think this is really very, very important when we're looking at the Dharma life, when we talk about spiritual death and spiritual rebirth, nothing remains. Nothing remains. There is, yes, spiritual rebirth uh, beyond that, but how can we possibly predict that? How will we know what that is unless we enter into this um, nothing remaining? This isn't nihilism either. This is the complete renunciation of our whole kind of superstructure, if you like, uh, our whole kind of construction of life and world. Uh, And, well, are we, am I, not we, am I, you know, prepared for that? You know, if I want myself to be, you know, reborn, if you like, within uh, uh, Padmasambhava or whatever, am I prepared to be consumed and eaten? You know, that is, the, that, is, that, that is the question for us. So Padmasambhava, in the life and liberation, yes, there are these... The, the Indian part of the life is, you know, very, very rich. But perhaps one way you can characterise what is going on, you, you have this vision of this wonderful child, if you like, you have vision, you have the entrapment of that mind within the world, you have the breaking out of that into a whole journey of initiation and transformation through the eight great cremation grounds of india and central asia and then with the emergence of, of the invitation of padmasambhava moving into tibet where in a way things do become sort of more historical you have in a sense the fruit of all that the fruit of and, and you you're, the fruit in the sense of the entry into a very very specific world. The Indian part of the life and liberation of Papua Savra is dreamlike. It's incredibly dreamlike. It's sort of samboga kirish or whatever it might be, I don't know. But when you get to Tibet you get something else. Uh, you, 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 you've got a sort of entry into history. You've got specific time, specific place, specific locality, specific people, if you like the vast and the general the vastness of wisdom and compassion are moving into the very, very particular and personal and individual. This is very important. This is to do with the Dharma reaching the minute particulars of person, of people, of place, of culture. All of that vastness needs to be applied to the particular. Uh, It's well worth, I think, reflecting on this in the life of the order. You know, these, these, these incredible sort of challenges that we have of you know, a, 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 an order spread across different cultures, an order which has, has a very, very strong vision of, of deep, deep harmony. Uh, Sabuti sitting here um, recently was really evoking again that uh, Avalokiteshvara myth, myth the, the myth of, of great compassion uh, and that, 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 that whole vision of, um, you know, being united by a, a common heart of bodhicitta And yet, having that individual and particular expression. And yes, we need all sorts of organisational things to make sure that happens. But in the end, actually, the only way this can be realised is through transcendental realisation. It can only be realised through a deep, deep seeing into the nature of things. It does mean coming together in large numbers like this, of course, to see that the vast and the particular... But we have to make this a living experience in our own life that we carry, you know, all the time. The bigger the order gets, the more the, the deeper we have to connect with, uh, you know, the 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 the, uh, uh, the 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 vision, if you like, of the order, you know, which can't be, uh, you know, guaranteed, if you like, by uh, by organisation. It can be supported by organisation, but it can't be guaranteed by it. It's the the, the duty of every individual order member to realise this, if that's what we want, if that's what we want. So Padmasambhava takes that realisation to the specific circumstance. The specific circumstance, very importantly, is the building of a temple, the building of a monastery. must never forget that, that, that Padmasambhava goes to Tibet... You know, and converts the gods and the demons, not because it's just fun converting gods and demons, I'm sure it's fun for him, it's because there's a very specific problem. Uh, to establish the Dharma in Tibet, they need to build a temple. It's not going to just happen in caves. It's not just going to happen in people's rooms in their villages. In the same way, it's not going to happen in our individual flats and bedsits and houses. It's not going to happen. They need to build a temple. One of the things about Tibet, part of the mythology of Tibet and its different temples and monasteries, you don't quite realise just how uh, yeah, how deep these things go. Apparently Tibet, is uh, the, the, the body of Tibet, is of, a, is of a, an ogress. That is a sort of spread out ogress. And the different temples have been built on different parts of the body of the ogress to keep her... to keep her okay, uh, to keep her okay, to keep her uh, supportive. I know uh, Arloka says, why is Padmaloka here? Why is it here? You could say, well, it was handy, we could buy this house. But no, it's it's in the midst of uh, the Naga realm. You know, all this water. You know, there's a great big Naga snaking down to Yarmouth. You know, all these marshes. You know, that's why we've got to have a Padmasambhava temple here. Uh, this is really, really important in the, in, the, in the economy, the sort of spiritual economy of, of the land, to have this place uh, here. Um, you don't believe me, that's okay. It's not a dogma. Uh, it's just the way things are. Um, so Padmasambhava, Padmasambhava has to transform the demons because they're trying to build something. They're trying to build something, a focus where the sangha can meet and gather, where the yogis and the monks and the lay people and the you know, people from all sorts of life, the nomads, you know, or the, the Lassa Intelligentsia, or whoever it might be. It's where people can come, where they can gather, where they can worship, where they can study. It's the place of initiation. It's the place where the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas come alive at the consecration of Samye. Uh, Padmasambhava... You imagine Padmasambhava doing a dedication ceremony. (laughs) Uh, You know, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas step off the walls and start walking around, mingling with the people. The rupas start walking around. You're going up to people saying, how's your meditation? How are you going on with your practice? You know, imagine that. Incredible. He animates, in other words. He animates that... Uh, that world. It's not just bricks and mortar or whatever they built with uh, in in that place. It's it's the the whole atmosphere, you know, generated by the Sangha. And it's not just Padmasambhava who generates, because he can only generate because there's a response, because there's a community. And of course, you know, one of the ways he has to do this is through, yes, converting all those deep, deep forces within the Tibetan Land and psyche. He gets them through his incredible beauty, incredible magical power, he gets them to give the heart of their lives. This is the, the, the image. They give the heart of their lives. The word is Nyingpo, which can be translated back translated into Sanskrit as either Hridaya, heart, uh, or Bija, which of course is essence mantra. Their name is their heart. Wonderful symbolism here. Their name is their heart. They give it. They give it up to the guru. They give it up to the teacher. This is, you know, when I asked Bhante once, what am I doing when I meditate on Padmasambhava?" He said, what you're doing, he said, is meditating on enlightenment as transforming. He said, not evil, but these natural forces that need, that are desperately need to be included in the Dharma life. They need that without the Dharma, they don't know what to do, that's why they run havoc. That's why they make a mess of things. They need the Dharma. They need to give the heart of their lives so that they can serve these deep, deep natural forces just desperate to serve a wise and glorious king, which is of course embodied in the guru in in the Dharma. They, they, they need to be part of that, to enrich that, to serve. Without that, they go mad, they go crazy, they wreck life. It's one of the things that you know, we need to, re- again, really think about. What are these forces going on in our society? What are the natural forces, if you like, in our society, which can get so distorted and so weird, turned into ideology? What are the natural forces, needs, if you like, that need taming and bringing to enrich Dharma, to in- enrich, you know, what we are, to protect and, you know, make it vivid and, and uh, you know, really uh, bring about the conversion of, uh, of uh, the modern world of, uh, uh, to the Dharma. I want to uh, uh, finish this talk, uh, which, as I said at the beginning, having talked about not being able to say anything, I realise I've gone on far too long. As usual. Um, reflecting on Padmasambhava and his community, his disciples, his Gana, as they call it in the Tantric tradition, the, the Gana, the very tight uh, in, you know, and broad, but the very strong bonds that are around a Guru, around the Tantric teacher, the Gana. Uh, one of the impressions you have of Padmasambhava, and particularly this response to Padmasambhava and his leading disciples, the 25 and more disciples, uh, in later Tibetan literature, especially the great Newmar devotees, is that, trem- is that there's just tremendous longing, tremendous longing. One writer, Janet Gatso, in her very good book on Jigme Lumpur, characterises Tibetan Buddhism as a culture of longing. A culture of longing. Uh, It's longing for that time, not in the nostalgic sense of going back in time, but you can't go back in time, but it's that vision of a community, a united community of men and women and all kinds of different lifestyles around a teacher, Around a teacher who's giving teachings, who's giving initiations, who's loving, who's encouraging, and they're inspired and they're practicing uh, together. Uh, when he leaves, of course, there's tremendous longing. When he gets on his winged horse and flies off, doesn't die, but just goes on to new work to the southwest, to the land of the Rakshasas and the cannibals. To tame, then there is just these cries of longing to the guru from afar, to come. But it's not just for the guru; it's for the whole environment again of that uh, united community uh, uh, around the teacher. I must say, I long for that. I long for that. Uh, my solitary retreat—I was. Uh, well, it didn't take me long to work out while I was reading these. Uh, these studies of different Sufi communities of, of years ago. And, uh, and the stories, I just loved reading these stories of these, of these disciples around teachers and just loving being together around their teacher. And of course, that, that, that Muslim idiom of, you know, you, they want to kiss the hands of their teacher and to kiss the feet of their teacher. The, the language is very, very strong in terms of love. And I realise, actually, that's the land I want to be in. I want to be in that land of being with a teacher, the Guru Buddha's abode, as it's called. That's the world I want to be in, where all I have to do is to serve my teacher, serve my teacher with my brothers and sisters uh, in the Dharma. And all we have to do is to practice together, live together, work for the Dharma together, share the Dharma more and more widely, uh, together. That's the world I want to be in. Um, very interesting. I, I led a, my first ever mixed order retreat um, recently, at Adistana, uh, on uh, guru yoga. I was asked to do something on discipleship, and I said, no, what we'll, what we'll do is we'll practice guru yoga. We'll practice the guru yoga that Bhante was given by Karchar Rinpoche, and, uh, which he practiced. And in this practice, you turn yourself into... Uh, the ideal, the great devotee, disciple, Vajrayogini. Whether you take that literally or not, you're adopting uh, complete openness and sincerity and love for your teacher. You visualize your teacher above your head. In our case, that's Bhante, then Padmasambhava, then the 11-headed, thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, and then finally Amitabha. And you invoke, and you invoke, and you invoke... And eventually, you receive blessings, you receive initiations, and you unite. And through dissolving into the great bliss, you unite with your teacher as the specific embodiment and expression of Amitabha's wisdom, Avalokiteshvara's compassion, Padmasambhava's skillful means. Uh, he is your way into that, the specific way in which you connect with that vastness. And it was a a really wonderful retreat, really. We were practising a lot. But what was striking was the range of order members from different nationalities. People came all the way from Australia, from Mexico. Uh, People uh, came from different parts of uh, Europe, uh, different parts of the country. There were sort of semi-monastics on the retreat. There were married people on the retreat. There were single people on the retreat. There were young people in terms of age, natural age, old people in terms of age. It was old Jyoti Parler in his early 80s, you know, right through to Akasa Jyoti in her early 20s. Um, you had senior order members like Prakasha and myself and very, very new order members. What was striking was the love. I'm not even going to use words like unity and harmony. They don't do it. Love, love between people. United through this devotion. And Bhante himself was in blessing mode. I had a wonderful meeting with him, and he blessed me. He blessed the retreat. Kept saying how happy he was that the retreat was going on. People would go to see him, and they would come out... Blessed—that's the only way you could describe it. Something happened in the communication. He was part of our retreat. It—it it really was incredibly uh, uh, moving, uh, very, very rich. Um, and I realised, yes, this is this is the world that uh, I want to inhabit uh, all the time. And in a way, it is the world that I do inhabit all the time. And, you know, this is a very particular time for us. In the Nyingma tradition, especially probably in all Tibetan traditions, but I'm more aware of it in the Nyingma tradition, the last period of your teacher is an extraordinarily important time. It's an extraordinarily important time to receive blessing. It's an extraordinarily important time to reflect upon wanting to be with your teacher. Jyotipala Pala at the beginning of the retreat said i'm in my last days he knows very well he's in my, his last days he's very dear dear old friend of mine and to many others and he said all i want now is to is to do the guru yoga so i can be reborn again with banti i just want to be reborn with banti because he knows i want to follow that star i want to you know be with him very very moving you know, to hear this. It's a very traditional way of talking. And I should just say, I don't want everybody to think like this. I actually don't care whether or not you think like this. I mean, Some of you will find this language probably repugnant. It's the way I live. It's my aspiration, which I share with maybe some people. You can't institutionalise this. There's no way you can do that. There's no way I'd want to do that. That's repugnant to me. But it's the way I live. It's the way I want to live. So I'm going to end with Bhante's translation of the final prayer from uh, the Guru Yoga, that Guru Yoga. And uh, then we'll, we'd, we'd better move on. Oh my own immediate Sri Lama Rinpoche, abiding within the lotus of my heart, May you never separate from me, but on the contrary remain inseparable. Grant me Siddhi of body, speech and mind. Throughout all births may I have an excellent guru, and from him never separated may I practice the Sridharma. And fully accomplishing the good qualities of the paths and the Bhumis, may I speedily attain the Vajradhara state. From this evil mind of mine, speedily liber- liberated, May I speedily become the Guru Buddha, and may I lead all beings without exception to the Guru Buddha's abode. O Sri Guru, as are thy kaya's length of life and abode, and thy resplendent lakshanas, so also may I be.